Welcome back EmigCast. This is Gabby Joya, Med20, and I'm here with Dr. Chestnut, who's going to talk to us about head injuries and specifically concussion management. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Chestnut. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure, Gabby. Uh, well, I'm a family physician. I actually trained at Oregon Health Sciences University in medical school, graduated in uh, 89. Then I went to the Air Force and did some training in family medicine there and then spent some time paying back service there. It was great. I learned a lot about sports medicine and head trauma there. And then I joined faculty in 1995 here at OHSU. So I've been here a long time. I've worked in the departments of family medicine and orthopedics and now also have an appointment in neurology. You're kind of known as being an expert in concussions and concussion management. Um, how did that kind of come about? So because I've done a lot of work in sports medicine, that topic has come up a lot uh, in terms of treating athletes. Also, uh, it comprises a lot of our conferences every year and where we go to national conferences. It's in our journals. I've found that there weren't a whole lot of other specialties taking care of concussions. So when some of my family medicine patients years ago would get concussions, I'd try to find a neurologist or somebody who could manage the concussions. I found it was incredibly difficult to uh, engage other medical professionals who didn't either have an interest or much training in concussions. So it became very clear that if we were gonna uh, improve the care of concussions of all of our family medicine patients that got in car accidents or had falls or our athletes that um, those of us in sports medicine would have to uh, you know, kind of ramp it up and improve uh, both the diagnosis, treatment, but also the research uh, around concussion. What do you define as a concussion? Well, a concussion is basically a change in the brain function after a potentially concussive event, which is some sort of a uh, acceleration or deceleration to the brain, does not have to involve your head hitting something. Rotational injuries are more significant in terms of causing concussion. Uh, the change in brain function usually is manifested by some immediate changes, but also can be some delayed changes, and those happen to be in areas of uh, cognition, uh, symptoms like headaches, vision problems, vertigo, or just dizziness. The other would be somatic symptoms, behavioral changes or mood changes, problems with sleep, some neurologic dysfunction uh, that usually is manifested by the things that we can measure, which are balance, visual motion, motor, ocular problems. And those are the main issues, though some motor control issues like abnormal hand control uh, could also be an issue the main one we test after concussion is balance. And is there um, any certain diagnostic criteria that has to be met specifically for it to be diagnosed as a concussion? Well, not exactly. Uh, the criteria are that you have to have either a change in brain function or even headaches and uh, visual changes. So there's not there's not actually a full diagnostic criteria other than you know you could have one or many of those symptoms present afterwards and they can be immediate symptoms but they also could be delayed by multiple days and sometimes weeks. Some of the symptoms don't present till later because your system is in stress in that area so if you're not back at school or work you may not realize that you can't read, you may not notice that you can't perform executive function skills multiple items at once so a lot of those areas uh, even though they may be present early they're not recognized later because we don't we don't often perform tests in the emergency department uh, that have to do with executive function, reading, or, or other cognitive skills. And also, we actually don't have very sophisticated balance tests, 
and we don't do sophisticated ocular motor control tests in the emergency department other than just basic extraocular muscle motions. And there's also auditory processing problems which are never really assessed adequately uh, in even a clinic setting, let alone the emergency department. When do you see concussions the most? Who's at the highest risk for having concussions? Well, that's a good question. I think if you look at uh, sporting activities uh, in a large high school surveillance study, football is the no, you know, basically number one sport. However, the other sports that, that are involved in concussion for males at least are other contact sports like lacrosse, hockey, wrestling. But what's interesting is that you know women's soccer and girls' soccer in high school is rapidly approaching the same incidence as boys' football. So that's actually pretty concerning, and, and uh, it's a little surprising there isn't a little bit more public clamor about this. But factors involved in that are the aggressiveness in sport, allowing contact where there shouldn't be contact. There's just a lot of pushing of the kids to compete, even when they may be, be injured. And I know there's a lot of education for coaches or state laws and different things like that, but uh, the aggressiveness in sport and kind of the pressure to play are still big factors about why people get concussions and also play through them. As far as non-sports, uh, the biggest uh, factors are motor vehicle accidents, falls, uh, some violence. I mean, falls are a big problem in elderly. They can also be a factor in kids who either fall uh, out of windows and things like that. So there are some public health interventions that could help there. And then, of course, bicycles and playground are high uh, incidence activity as well, uh, particularly in the younger kids uh, up through about middle school age, as well as in adults who commute to work. So say you are an emergency medicine physician and you have a 17-year-old male come in after a collision at a football game mm -hmm. with suspicion for a concussion. What types of diagnostic testing do you think should be done as well as what type of imaging should be done? Right. Well, first of all, not uh, all patients with concussions get loss of consciousness. Uh, so if they did have loss of consciousness, we do generally send them to the emergency department, but 90% actually don't have loss of consciousness. So um, it's not necessary to bring somebody to an emergency department unless they have signs of severe problems or something that would be beyond a concussion. So most concussions can be cared for outside the emergency department. So if somebody comes to the emergency department and they've had a head injury and they have signs of their GCS score less than 13, then they um, would, would definitely fit into the uh, mild, uh, I mean to moderate category of traumatic brain injury. So those people need to be assessed fully for structural brain injury with, with scans generally. Um, and there's a whole set of criteria for imaging that help us to define which people need imaging and basically to limit the imaging to only those people that fit the criteria. There's two sets of criteria. One of them is the Canadian head CT rule for adults and the PCARN rules for pediatric population. And their whole goal is to identify people who have altered GCS scores that last longer than two hours. Those people who have a significant prolonged loss of consciousness, they have any sign of, of uh, cerebral um, bleeding, which could be also a skull fracture. If they're on blood thinners, they're greater than 65. They have episodes of vomiting greater than two in succession. And I believe that's most of the criteria. Um, and also, there's also room for clinician uh, uh, gestalt or just you know um, clinical reasoning, which is if they have a 
significant fall, like a car accident or falling off a window, then you may want to image them just because it's a pretty significant injury. For the most part, if you follow these rules and they don't qualify based on the rules, there is um, almost a, basically 100% sensitivity in picking up those neurosurgical issues that would, would be there. And so if you don't meet the criteria, then it's very safe to treat them and monitor them. And because of these studies, they also noted that if you monitor people for four hours, that they rarely have ever progressed. And so it also helps guide some of the recommendations about not needing to wake people up at night or monitor them too closely after about four hours, because if they've been monitored that long, they, they rarely, rarely progress, even in the emergency care setting where the most severely injured people had come you know, to be evaluated. What other tests? Well, balance tests are, are important to test, but they could be altered by, say, an ankle injury or some other trauma in a car accident, uh, looking at extraocular muscle uh, movements. Uh, but some of the subtle changes that aren't easily noted or maybe regularly noted in clinics or emergency departments are increased psychotic motions, so more jerky motions. Those can be associated with uh, concussions. And so we have a special test called the visual ocular motor screen. Uh, or the VOMs that we do in concussion clinics that look for uh, ability to uh, converge. So taking you know finger from a distance of about a foot away and following it all the way in and seeing where you get that near point convergence. And um, so there are criteria for that that can be followed as well. And then other tests are basically just general, <clears throat> general neurologic screening, evaluating the neck for uh, whiplash and type injuries basically just doing a general uh, neurology examination. So the other portion uh, that we check is cognitive. The best way to group all of this is through a screening tool called the SCAT. It's, it stands for Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. It's in the fifth version, so SCAT 5. That can be found online by typing in SCAT 5. It brings a form up that can be used in the sideline, but also can be used in an emergency care setting or subsequently in a clinic. The SCAT-5 symptom log, which catalogs all the symptoms that could be present. There's about 20 different uh, symptoms to evaluate on a six-point scale. Neurologic examination, including finger-to-nose, uh, rapid alternating motion, um, balance testing, and, uh, and gait testing. The balance testing is specifically called the BEST test, balance error scoring system, and that's assessed in three different standing positions and there's a scoring system for that. This is all on the SCAT-5. And finally, that mini metal status exam I mentioned, which is focused on orientation, tension, and memory. So those are the three areas that we're focused on in terms of the SCAT-5. You mentioned before that it can be difficult to assess for um, the ability to multitask or kind of the higher cognitive level function in an emergency setting. What are some tools to try and assess for that if, if a concussion is suspected. Yeah, that's difficult. There isn't really a good test for that. We do a test called the impact test, which is a neurocognitive test on online, but a lot of times we don't do that in emergency settings. So I think the best thing in the emergency department is to, uh, when trying to diagnose a concussion, is to look at the injury and then look at immediate symptoms. And if there's injury that would could cause a concussion, which is almost any really hit to the head, and you have immediate symptoms that could uh, include things like headaches or visual problems, certainly any things that we've talked about, then I think you can clearly diagnose with a concussion and that should be one of the diagnoses that's uh, put on the chart. You could say closed injury if you want. You could call it, we'd prefer, I guess, in some ways you call it a concussion. 
But if they don't have symptoms or signs immediately, it doesn't mean they don't have a concussion. It just means they don't have them at the time. A lot of times symptoms emerge over hours and days. So I think the best way to diagnose that is you could say, you know, there still was a closed head injury, but at currently there's no sign of concussion, um, but it needs to be observed and watched for, you know, uh, the diagnosis of concussion could um, be documented at a later date or time. Uh, when I look back at emergency medicine visits, uh, it's clear that sometimes there's major trauma and the major trauma is focused on in terms of say broken arm, broken leg, and people end up getting sedative medications. So it's very difficult to, um, you know, to assess people after they have pain medications on board. So it's almost impossible sometimes to figure out if there's a concussion, if there's other trauma involved. And um, in fact, there have been some studies that say that in the emergency care setting, as high as 40% of the patients who ultimately get have concussions aren't diagnosed in the emergency department or are documented. But a day later, if they've gone through a very specific concussion testing, uh, or even in the days or weeks later, uh, that diagnosis can be made. You know, so I think trying to diagnose the concussion in the emergency department is vital. But I think there's also uh, a knowledgement that um, sometimes all the tests <clears throat> aren't available to be done or the protocols aren't there. So some of the people with concussions um, don't have those documented in the emergency department. So I guess the one thing I'd say, if you don't see those symptoms, but there's a potentially concussive event, I would still uh, document it as, yes, they got a contusion in their head and concussion symptoms could present later. You mentioned earlier about criteria for uh, diagnostic imaging. What are your images of choice? What are kind of those next steps that you would recommend taking and how do you evaluate those images? So in the emergency department setting, uh, the test of choice for imaging in the emergency department setting is a head CT, plain head CT. This is done mainly because of availability uh, and also because it does pick up blood pretty well. So. If you do find any blood at all, then it actually is beyond a concussion. It's a, it's a structural brain injury. So a lot of times uh, there's a misconception that if a s imaging is negative, that they don't have a concussion. It's actually exactly opposite. If imaging is positive, they don't have a concussion. <laughs> they actually have a more severe brain injury. So in order to have a concussion, you actually have a, have a negative CT scan. And same thing with MRIs. But in the emergency setting, CTs are the test of choice. Now, there has been some discussion that MRIs might be a reasonable alternative, but a lot of studies around stroke and all show that there's not a high enough availability of MRIs to, to scan people for trauma on a 24-hour you know, basis in the emergency department. So, although in the future, we might see MRIs replacing that, uh, right now, CTs are the uh, test of choice. And in a subacute setting, uh, the test of choice would be MRI. Uh, because you might pick up more problems structurally with the MRI. But even at that, there's not much of a role in MRI because for the most part, we don't do anything differently with MRI findings, even if we find them uh, in the setting of uh, head trauma. And then can you talk a little bit about concussion management? Um, what's kind of the disposition for a patient that's found to have a concussion? What the return to play protocol for young athletes, what that entails? So the question of what treatments to uh, recommend after the diagnosis is made is, is really vital. Right now, we know that some form of rest is a good idea. 
but we used to recommend rest that extended for long periods of time. Now we know that rest probably not longer than two to three days is, is best for somebody. There were studies done in emergency departments that randomized people to rest uh, at three days or five days, and the kids that were randomized in the three days actually end up doing better than the kids that were randomized in the five days in terms of their symptomatology, even though there was still no difference in full recovery. So there have been subsequent studies that show that exercise is uh, safe in the kind of the subacute setting within you know days after concussion, even exercise testing, and we know that exercise as a therapy is is helpful for recovery. So. We no longer limit people from light aerobic exercise after concussion, but we don't want them progressing into more extensive exercise or certainly not back to contact until they're cleared, which probably means they need to be out of contact sports for probably about a week. Light aerobic exercise can be started before symptoms have fully resolved, and extensive exercise is limited by uh, exacerbation of symptoms. So a typical recommendation would be go home and, and stay home from work or school for approximately two days. Don't engage in overly brain-stimulating activities like video games, you know, intensive movies, things like that, computer work, try to avoid those things. And so rest, hydration, and, and light activity for a couple days. But soon after that, or even earlier, within one day, if symptoms are resolved, you can start getting back to more, more regular activities. Um, transitioning back to school over a period of a few days to a few weeks is reasonable, depending on what your symptoms are. And fortunately, 80% uh, of people resolve in three weeks, and so they can get back to full activity. There are return to play protocols that are approximately five to seven days long. So. Uh, you can progress through, you know, the light activity symptom limited to uh, more uh, extensive physical activity uh, at about 70% of your heart rate. Then you can go to sports-specific activity. You can go to some lifting and some uh, non-contact activity. Then you go to contact the next day and finally back to full contact, and that takes about five to seven days. If symptoms resolve in the first 24 to 48 hours, then you can basically get back to play within about a week. If they don't resolve within 48 hours, then it's probably going to take about two weeks to get back, which is probably the vast majority of people. And then the longer it takes to get back to normal, the longer, of course, it takes to get back to sport. Unfortunately, in our concussion clinics, we tend to see the people who don't resolve in three to four weeks. There are certainly factors that uh, would, in, would uh, predict that. One is having history of migraines in yourself or your family, problems with depression or mood, multiple concussions in the past, history of um, ADD or learning disorders can be a problem and those are those are some of the main issues as well as potentially sleep uh, sleep disorder and then after a concussion if you have balance problems like dizziness um, severe headaches blurred vision those are the ones that seem to predict uh, uh, a slower recovery as well as uh, a lot of light and noise sensitivity so we also know that early rehabilitation uh, can actually improve recovery in terms of uh, symptom reduction and speed of recovery. We've recently uh, conducted a number of studies here in our balance disorders lab with our sports medicine group here at OHSU. We are instituting um, acute rehab protocols and these are basically vestibular and ocular motor protocols with also some um, auditory biofeedback. But we've been finding that these programs 
are a little bit difficult to to get going because a lot of uh, physicians and uh, clinics don't refer people to uh, rehab clinics early enough to probably benefit from the early rehab. And what are some of the long-term effects of concussions? So long-term effects of concussion can be persistent headaches. Some people have blurred vision and problems with uh, reading computer screens and kind of visual tracking. Uh, some people have balance problems, also cognitive issues, a difficulty with executive function, uh, and also mood disorders that occur as well. In a study in pro football players showed if you have over three reported concussions in pro football players, which is probably means they had quite a few more than that, but they had a three times increase uh, in the risk of depression. And so we know that there's a lot of problems with mood and irritability and anxiety after concussion that uh, needs to be identified and treated as well. So that's a topic that's been on the rise in the last few years. Um, what are your thoughts on some of the high-impact sports like football? So football is one of those sports that uh, has been kind of central to American kind of culture and athletics for a long time. And there have been some changes in the rules over the years that, to make it safer. The problem is it still involves hitting your head. Um, and so there have been some efforts to decrease the amount of uh, end times that people hit their head in football, but it's still inherent in the sport. I think the people involved with football realize that in order for football to be a sport that people can continue to participate, it needs to be made safer. At the level of uh, the State Activity Association for high schools, most of the groups, including the, in Oregon, have uh, put rules in place to limit the number and uh, hours and days of participating in uh, contact practice. So that's helped a lot uh, in decreasing the number of hits. And so there's been some rules in, in football that have made a big difference. The problem is there's a lot of rules in the books that aren't being enforced. So probably one of the biggest impacts that can be made is just enforcing some of the rules uh, that are in the books, like the helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact um, with um, targeting that's being enforced more. And then, of course, soccer, which is a, uh, doesn't have as bad a press, but in reality has a very high incidence. The number and types of concussions could probably easily be reduced by just enforcement of the current rules, which is basically no significant contact of the elbow or to the head. And a lot of the concussions occur from people getting elbowed and hit in the head, which is totally um, against the rules. And most concussions occur during the act of heading though not actually hitting the ball. So it's really the contact involved with heading. So if there could be some uh, focus on uh, limiting contact during heading, would probably make a big difference in concussions, though of course people think that's a big part of the game. So there needs to be a little give and take on the people participating and the people watching these games in order for you know this um, them to be safer. But the problem is we do need to find ways for young men and women to be active and the sports they're currently choosing are these ones that have an aggressive component. Uh, we do know if they're not participating in sports, uh, they don't have school, uh, after school activities, that there are other problems including, you know, some truancy issues, teen pregnancy issues, um, and there are other issues that come up including medical issues associated with low physical activity. So I think uh, further efforts will be made and should be made to make these safer, but we also have to find ways to keep people participating as we kind of change the games. And I think that's a, that's a challenge. It's not an excuse more than it is a challenge to keep people active and safe at the same time. What else should emergency medicine physicians, residents, and students consider with any sort of brain injury? 
um, or head concussion or trauma? What else should be on the differential and what else should mm -hmm. we be evaluating for? Right. Well, certainly the considerations are, is there bleeding in the brain? Is there structural brain injury? And so the criteria that basically help direct uh, imaging are basically the criteria to identify those more severe injuries. So keeping that in mind is important. The other is that if we don't diagnose a concussion in the emergency department and somebody is allowed to go back to play, then they're more likely to have uh, prolonged and severe symptoms if they, if they get hit again before they're recovered. So I think it is important to identify the possibility of concussion even though it may not exist. And the important thing is not to clear them to go back to sport uh, even if you don't find you know, major signs or symptoms of concussion. If you have suspicion about it, say, we think you might have a concussion, but we'd like you to go to your primary care doctor or to a sports clinic or a concussion clinic uh, just to make sure before they go back to play that they don't have signs or symptoms of concussion persisting. Cervical spine clearance protocols are important uh, you know, when you have a head injury as well. And the other thing is just if you have multiple trauma patients, I know there's a lot of important things going on there, but just leave open the possibility they could have concussion and uh, that you know often may present over days and weeks afterwards, particularly if they're in the hospital for a long time or if they've uh, not been back to work or school, uh, it may not be clear that they have concussions until actually they go back to work or school. One of the things I'd just like to give a plug for is being involved in some of the public policy side or the community efforts to help with concussions. One of the areas we worked on a lot in Oregon is Oregon Concussion Awareness and Management Program, trying to get schools to have emergency action plans that involve evaluation and treatment of concussions, among other serious problems, including heart, etc. But we do need emergency medicine providers, medical students, and um, you know all all sorts of providers to be involved in the process at the community level, so that you know we can develop these protocols, but also have somebody who's kind of almost like a consultant and also to help with the return to play process and also to help just go to schools and talk to coaches and students and parents about the problems associated with concussions, that those factors that we could do to prevent them, to lessen them, or to at least treat them appropriately uh, so that they go through the appropriate return to play protocols um, and uh, that everybody's treating these seriously. And the other problem is there's a point at which if you get too many concussions in one sport, you probably need to retire from that sport. Uh, and I think everybody should take a little bit of a role in just identifying that process, um, you know, and I don't think in the merge department you need to necessarily tell people they need to retire from their sport, but it's always good to bring up the discussion of, you know, seems like you've had a, a lot of head trauma here, it's a serious thing, and this could, you know, treat you long term, you need to talk to your primary care or somebody about whether this is good for you to continue. So opening conversations about uh, long-term problems, I think, is, is, is essential in the emergency department as well. And then last but not least, um, we talked about return to play. We talked about kind of the pressure in society now, kids and coaches wanting to get back as soon as possible. Um, what are some of the repercussions in terms of going back too early and having a follow-up? The, there certainly can be some severe problems. I mean, there's this concept of second impact syndrome which is not as prevalent as, uh, but it is very serious. And so in a classical form, you know, you could get cerebral edema and it could cause death. In a more common form, it creates compounded problems that, that last a lot longer, that really complicate recovery. It's, it's vital that they um, 
help keep these kids out until they get fully healed. Thanks so much, Dr. Chestnut. That's all for today, EmaCast. See you guys next time.